He was big. He was bad. He was scary. But most of the stories about him were absolute bullshit. Who are we talking about? It's Yusuf Ismail, the Terrible Turk. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Holy crap, you did it. I did it. I pressed a button. I made a thing. You pressed a button. You're listening to a thing. It brings us together. Is there a dog in your room? There's a dog in my room. Are those dogs together on some mystic plane? What am I even talking about? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter, a pro wrestling booker, but more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd, and I am here today just by myself again. Um, for those of you who don't follow Chongo on social media, during a match he had a neck injury, a neck injury turned into a throat injury, he had to have surgery, and when you have throat surgery, it turns out you can't talk very well for a little while, so he's having to take some time off, heal up, get better, and in the meantime, I didn't want to just leave no content out there. I wanted to make sure we don't miss episodes or I don't miss episodes. So we're just moving forward, talking about some of my pet obsessions. I guess that's what we've been doing the whole time, but it's just me for now. Hopefully that is acceptable to you. So we're moving into a little phase of this show where I'm kind of doing some some house cleaning, if you will. I, I went back into the, the storage shed that was our early episodes, and ugh, boy, I had a little bit of a little bit of cringe, if you will, because in the early days of this show, I wasn't so much doing research as I was doing a book report. If you listen to the Muldoon and the Evan Strangler Lewis episodes, and even the uh, Mildred Burke episodes, those were me reading one or two books and just saying, cool, I, I accept these authors at face value, I accept their research as complete, and I will present their ideas and some of my own takes on things. Boom, there you go. It was only after those first five or six episodes that I really started doing first hand research on my own, being a little more in depth, putting a little more work into it. And I didn't want to go back and just completely redo the William Muldoon story. I might at some point, but I didn't want to do that yet, or the Evan Strangler Lewis story. So what I wanted to do was revisit some of these times, some of these people, some of these stories through the lens of different people. I wanted to tell these stories from different perspectives with more source material, different, um, different ideas presented about who these people were, what they were doing, and why they were doing it. And I don't want to sound like I am talking trash about the authors whom I, uh, I was reading at the time, because guess what? They were doing the best they could with the materials they had at hand. A lot of the books that you will come across were done in the pre-internet days, or at least the early internet days. So they didn't have, you know, the Library of Congress digital archive. They didn't have newspaperarchives.com. They didn't have the New York Times time machine to go back and peruse old articles. They went to the local library. They busted out the microfiche. They found the archives of wrestling collectors who had clippings and so on and so forth. So they had the most complete amount of research in front of them that was available. I just happened to live in the year 2022. And therefore, I have more access to more information thanks to the interwebs. And lucky me, 
but it doesn't necessarily make me better at what I'm doing than they were at what they were doing at that time. And I'm still capable of making mistakes because there are going to be some of you who go, wait a minute, idiot, I found this article or I heard this story and that contradicts this thing you're saying or what that article says. And guess what? You might be correct. I might be correct. Somebody else might be correct. Because that is the fun thing about reading newspaper articles from the late 1800s. It's a time when if a match happened in Chicago, you might not hear about it in New York for two days, and it might be a game of telephone where you, the names have changed or the information is now wrong. There's a lot of little nuance in that when, you know, you didn't have radio, you didn't have, uh, you know, these weren't the, these weren't the most important uh, subjects of the day. Sometimes sports writers just simply didn't give a crap and were covering wrestling because they couldn't get tickets to the baseball game comped for their uh, position. They would much rather be covering the horse races. There is a lot of information that just, again, just gets wrong through indifference, outright malice, or a game of telephone where the proper story drifts off and you happen to pick up the paper that says the wrong name or gives the wrong results or however you want to put it. That's just unfortunately how history works. So I try to go through as many different versions of the story as I can, try to you know, boil it all down to the closest thing to, to a true story that I can provide, and here we are. And the subject we are going to discuss today is Yusuf Ismail, or Yosef Ismail, or occasionally Yosef Ismailo. There are several versions of his name, as I found in various papers, again trying to translate a foreign name into an American paper when met with outright xenophobia and lazy uh, source material. Heck, that's what you gotta go with, but it seems like the consensus is Yusuf Ismail, so that's what I'm going to be using moving forward. Um, and he was born in 1857, probably, in the village of Karolar, Bulgaria, which was then part of the Ottoman Empire. Little is known of his life before winning the Kirkpinar Tournament in 1887, which is a three-day Turkish oil wrestling tournament that has been held annually since 1360. Oil wrestling is much different from European-style wrestling. The body is greased to make grips harder to get, thus eliminating strength advantage, unless it's a huge strength advantage. Most of the grips then are done to the leather pants a wrestler is wearing, trying to force their opponent onto their back. So you create a level playing field by everybody being greased up, so it's more technique and uh, agility as opposed to brute strength. But when you have somebody with overwhelming brute strength, heck, sometimes that can even beat the oiled up advantage. So... This, this does breed a different type of wrestler, both physically and strategically, than in Europe and in America. One thing I do want to say is, if I am mispronouncing any of these French names, I apologize. I do not speak French, unfortunately, so I might be off a little bit on some pronunciations, but you, by and large, will get the point of the stories. According to French fitness icon and author Edmond Desbonnet, the Turkish invasion came to Paris in 1894 when wrestler Joseph Dublier was defeated by Fernand Sabes. 
and went looking for talent to use as his instrument of revenge. Dublier traveled to the Ottoman Empire and returned with Kara Osman, Nurallah Hassan, and the six foot two, 250 pound Yusuf Ismail. Ismail reportedly defeated Sabes in four seconds. That is a heck of a feat if true, but feels more like more like legend and lore uh, than fact to me, but what the heck do I know? For three years, Ismail dominated the Parisian wrestling scene, going so far as to say that he'd cut his own throat if he was ever defeated, which is frankly just being overdramatic. At the Cirque de Hiver, Yusuf Ismail faced off against another Turk, Ibrahim Mahmut. Ismail became so angry during the match that he tore Mahmut's nostrils, broke his ribs, and had to be separated by Tom Cannon, who might have been the referee, and several police officers and audience members. In 1898, Yusuf Ismail came to the U.S. with manager Antonio Pieri, where promoter William Brady booked him at the London Theatre in New York City with a $100 prize for anyone who could last 15 minutes. That is kind of a standard challenge of the time, because keep in mind, we're back in those pioneer days, those circus days, those vaudeville theater days, the days when primarily it was a worked match to demonstrate wrestling, followed by the challenge matches where the goofballs in the crowd were more than welcome to sign up to see if they could not get thrown by a professional wrestler and if they were able to last that 10 minutes those 15 minutes they got a pretty big chunk of change for those days to uh, take home and a heck of a lot of bragging rights to go with it and the promoter of this William Brady is a fascinating character unto himself his father kidnapped him away from his mother and took him to New York City, where he was forced to sell newspapers on the streets to support his father. Upon the elder Brady's death, he hitchhiked back to San Francisco, where he got involved in the theater. He bumbled his way into the boxing world by casting James Jeffries in a play, then introducing him to the boxing world, where Jeffries would become the heavyweight champion. Brady would also manage Jim Corbett. He also championed black stars in a very racist time, going so far as to build a racetrack to promote black cyclist Major Taylor, who could not get booked in the primarily white circuit. Back to the wrestling challenge and its prize. George Bothner, who was a highly acclaimed lightweight, attempted to claim it. Bothner stated that there wasn't a man alive he couldn't pin in 15 minutes. He accused Ismail of being a showbiz fraud. Bothner didn't last the 15 and received a neck injury for his efforts. In sports writer Nat Fleischer's book, From Milo to Londos, George Bothner was quoted as saying, He was a modern Hercules and he knew how to apply his punishing strength as he was as quick as a jungle cat and master of all holds. Yusuf came at me like a ball. He rushed me right off the mat and into a bunch of chorus girls in the wing. The first thing I knew, I found myself helpless. The Turk picked me up as if I were a kitten. Never before have I felt such terrible strength. Before I could give a wiggle or a squirm, he dashed me down on the boards with terrible force. Before I could give a wiggle or squirm, he dashed me down on the boards with terrific force, knocking all the strength and wits out of me. They told me that after I had landed. 
Yusuf rolled me over with his foot, looked out over the audience, gave a contemptuous snort, and walked off the stage. When I came to, I was a sadder but wiser young man. Somehow or other, I got into my clothes, hobbled out onto the street, and started to walk up 3rd Avenue towards my home. Yusuf had given my neck such a wrench that he almost tore it from my shoulders. It was several days before I could look in the direction I was headed. Probably a lot of hyperbole, but good lord, what a way to put over a man who beat you senseless. But, as we all know in pro wrestling, if you get beat by a bum, that makes you a bum. So of course he's going to make Yusuf Ismail sound like a god who bumbled his way down from the heavens to defeat all of mankind. Again, true story, probably somewhere in the middle. Yosef Ismail's first loss was a disqualification against Greco-Roman heavyweight champion Ernest Rober at Madison Square Garden on March 26, 1898. The match was made for $500 a side plus 50% of the gate, under Greco-Roman rules but with no holds barred, two out of three falls. According to the March 27th New York Times article, Yusuf fouled Rober, the much-heralded wrestling match between Ernest Rober and Yusuf at Madison Square Garden last night, which it was claimed would restore wrestling to its former high favor with the sporting public, ended in a fizzle and almost resulted in a riot. The trouble was caused by the fact that Yusuf, who is known as the Terrible Turk, almost frenzied with anger at being unable to get his opponent to come on the mat and wrestle gave him a push which sent Rober flying off the stage to the ground five feet below. And yes, that means they were wrestling on top of a platform lifted five feet up with no ropes to make sure everybody could see it, but for fuck's sake, safety first, kids. Back to the article. Rober was out for several minutes, and there was worry in the crowd that he was dead. The audience charged the ring, with only the police being able to stop them from getting to the Turk. Chief of Police McCullough quickly gathered his men around the platform, for it was evident that if the crowd laid hands on the Turk, they would deal roughly with him. Rober dislocated his shoulder and hurt his back. Rober was awarded the match via disqualification, and the crowd lost it and the police had to escort Ismail backstage as the crowd chanted, Kill the Turk! and threatened to lynch him. Who boy, 1898 America. Back to the article. He jumped back on the mat and danced about in a rage like a caged animal until the policeman escorted him out to his dressing room. Later, William Brady offered an exhibition match between Ismail and Tom Cannon as a replacement for the night, but police chief John McCullough shut it down for fear of rioting. In a later article from the New York Times, it was reported that the crowd chanted, Fake! Fake! and sang, Get your money's worth! the chorus to a popular ragtime song of the day. So we are seeing these matches turning into absolute shit shows, and a lot of that comes from somebody who is not used to Greco-Roman wrestling, let alone catch-as-catch-can. The oil wrestling techniques and rules are a very different set than the Greco-Roman rules, so even as somebody who'd been competing in Paris for a while under those rules, Still, it's a very different experience. There is a language barrier that I assume meant uh, some problems with uh, translation for what the rule sets were. And also, he could have just been an asshole. There's lots of options, lots of reasons. It might have been all of them. 
On March 28th, there was a printed statement from Yusuf claiming he never meant to hurt Rober and he was sorry for doing so, claiming he didn't push his opponent. Instead, Rober was running around the edges of the platform and was knocked off when Yusuf tried to grab him to force him to wrestle in the middle of the ring. The good old-fashioned whoopsie-doodle defense. I've used it myself several times. On April 3rd, in the Buffalo Morning News, William Brady took it even further and claimed he was flimflammed, and that Yusuf did not even touch Rober when that wrestler fell off the platform and claimed foul upon the Turk. So now we're doubling down even further and just blaming Rober for being a, uh, a, bit, of a bit of a goofball and a bit of a klutz. Hey, whatever works, right? On April 7th, the New York Times reported that the representatives of Yusuf, Heraclides, the Greek, and Ernest Rober met to arrange a tournament, with all participants posting a forfeit to ensure the matches. Yusuf was originally scheduled to meet the Greek on April 30th, unless Rober wanted him on that date. Um, the posting of a forfeit, there was a tradition in wrestling going back well into the 1800s and went all the way up until the 40s and 50s in some cases. Or if you were getting a very expensive championship belt, you had to even put down a deposit on that. The forfeit was to make sure you didn't talk a good game and then not show up and then have excuses. It was guaranteeing that your presence would be your attendance would be a thing at the venue at the right time, along with your uh, your side bet. So you did have to put a fair amount of money out of your own pocket into these matches to ensure that they happened. It was the days of big stars and the big promoters, not necessarily territories and promotions. The New York Times reported on April 14th that Yusuf Ismail and Tom Jenkins were set to have a match for $1,000 a side. Jenkins wanted pure catch rules, but settled for Greco-Roman for the first fall, catch for the second, and the third chosen by whomever won the first fall. The match was set for May 4th in Cleveland. The contract specified a 22-foot ringed rope to avoid the ending of the Rober match at Madison Square Gardens. In the meantime, as was Rober's option, the rematch was attempted on April 30th at the Metropolitan Opera House. According to the New York Times on May 1st, the big opera house was crowded from the top gallery to the orchestra floor. The paper claimed that Rober was the better scientific wrestler, but the Turk lost his temper and, quote, slammed the German against the ring posts with full force. After 20 minutes, it happened again, and, quote, the little man threw his knowledge of wrestling to the winds, and urged on by the shouts of the incensed spectators, went at the Turk with bare knuckles. The referee tried to separate the men, Brady jumped into the ring and tried to tackle Rober, and boxer Bob Fitzsimmons ran to defend Rober, who picked up Brady, who was, quote, picked up like a child and hurled through the ropes by the big pugilist. He landed on the reporter's table and made his way back again, only to be thrown out again by a couple of policemen. Later in the article, pandemonium reigned and for 10 minutes there was danger of a stampede in which the loss of life would have been a certainty. The match was declared a no contest. The article predicted the match had, quote, probably put an end to the attempted revival of the sport of wrestling. So if that isn't pro wrestling, I don't know what is. 
Is there a possibility all of that happened legitimately? Sure, of course there is. There's also a more probability that this was all showbiz ballyhoo, uh, set up just to bring the ire of the crowd, get everybody fired up, make everybody hate the foreigner and cheer the local. I mean, he was of German descent, but he was still, you know, an American wrestler. This was an attempt to make wrestling interesting in New York City after the heyday of men like Bauer, Muldoon, and Whistler being the the gentlemanly athletes of the Greco-Roman world. We constantly see wrestling trying to reinvent itself, and when it normally had to, a lot of it was, how do we make a lot of people talk about this, and the way you get people to talk about it is a lot of crazy bullshit. The Tom Jenkins match happened as planned at the Cleveland Central Armory. The first fall was one hour and one minute, and the second was 11 minutes, with the Turk winning both. According to the Akron Beacon Journal, quote, Jenkins and his friends claimed a foul and a riot nearly resulted. From the Buffalo Inquirer, Brady and Yusuf and their party only gave the objectors the laugh. Another one from the Buffalo Inquirer on May 16, 1898, Yusuf Ismail gave an interview over dinner saying nice things about America, Americans, American wrestlers, especially Tom Jenkins, but except Ernest Rover. The author claimed that, quote, if he goes back to Turkey defeated, we'll be a shy a few inches of his neck after the Sultan's police get through interviewing him. The terrible Turk had been booked in Buffalo at the Shea Garden Theater, with the management offering $100 to any man whom Yusuf could not throw in 15 minutes. The theater manager, Ben Hertig, publicly stated that he would give a big money contract to anyone who could defeat the Turk. So we're seeing another thing in here. The presumption of exotic savagery and barbarism from other cultures. They have this idea that if he goes back to the Ottoman Empire defeated, the Sultan will have him beheaded or some crazy scene out of uh, the adventures of Baron Munchausen. They're thinking of it in exotic pulp adventure terms, not in the realities of a sport. But when it's wrestling, you always have to build up the big foreign menace as the wildest situation possible, and that's a true story even to this day. June 1st, the Dayton Herald covers Yusuf's preparation in Cincinnati for his match with Charlie Whitmer. Much like with Andre the Giant and other enormous athletes, they gave extra coverage to his dinner of four large beefsteaks, drank a dozen bottles of beer, and ate enough potatoes, cabbage, etc. for five ordinary men. The man's in training. He needs calories. Saturday, June 4th, Charles Whitmer versus Yusuf Ismail at the Walnut Street Theater. The match was a boring draw, according to the Cincinnati Inquirer. The crowd chanted, fake, fake, and at one point a fan walked down to the ring, acting like he was going to get involved, and the crowd cheered him on. The same article spent most of its ink space putting over Whitmer as more than a match against Ernst Rober whom they called the counterfeit claimant of the title, who had ducked and sidestepped every overture made by Whitmer towards a match. You know a match is awesome when they're talking about other potential matches instead of the one at hand. The Waterloo Daily Courier claimed that Yusuf was sick, carrying a note from a doctor, but was still allowed to wrestle. 
The match began at 9.35 and was stopped by the police at midnight and declared a draw. Yusuf was slamming and laying on Whitmer, but couldn't turn him over for the pin. Frank Kelly, manager of Charlie Whitmer, complained to the Cincinnati Enquirer on June 17th that the Turk was faking sick to dodge Whitmer, claiming that the pharmacist who filled Yusuf Ismail's prescription sold him a salve to make him harder to grip, and that Yusuf's name should be changed to You Stiff, the Horrible Shirk. Oh, these kids and their name-calling, am I right? June 11th, the match versus Heraclides, the Greek, at Madison Square Garden, Two out of three falls, mixed rules. From the New York Times the next day, Heraclides emerged from the dressing room apparently full of confidence. In striking contrast to the stolid demeanor of the Turk, he bound down the stairs into the arena in a theatric manner. He made a pro wrestling entrance, blowing kisses and, quote, circling around with outstretched arms like a ballet girl as he came to the mat. Hey, if you're gonna get the crowd on your side, a good entrance is uh, where you start. Once the match started, Heraclides slammed the Turk, who threw him to the ground and strangled him until the shoulders were down. The fall lasted 37 seconds. The Greek wasn't moving, and some thought Yusuf Ismail had broken his neck while strangling him. He was picked up by his hands and feet and carried off. But 15 minutes later, he managed to come out for the catch rules match, which ended in 3 minutes and 5 seconds. So... How much of that is real? How much of that is a work? How much of that is exaggeration? Again, so hard to say. But yeah, it is very dramatic when somebody is literally carried to the back, but then comes out to fight a little bit later. Anytime I see that, I just have to, uh, I have to check the bottom of my shoes because I smell bullshit. June 17th, the terrible Turk may have been famous for his strength and brutality, but the papers also gave equal print space to his appetite yet again. The Buffalo Courier, hyping his upcoming match against Evan the Strangler Lewis, printed, Terrible Turk eats more now than ever. Quote, John L. Sullivan is becoming insanely jealous. It is said from the startling accounts of the appetite of Yusuf the Terrible Turk. They compared the epic meals of John L. Sullivan to what Ismail had been putting away in public, claiming Sullivan's infamous gluttony was, quote, a Tom Thumb meal to what the terrible Turk daily consumes. So we're just turning overeating into a circus sideshow uh, sport, but hey, I, whatever sells papers, right? On June 20th at the Tattersall Building, a rather new event center in Chicago that had hosted the Ringling Brothers Circus, races, and Western shows, the terrible Turk, Yosef Ismail, took on Evan the Strangler Lewis. As you can imagine, there was plenty of press leading up to this. Could the hated but still hot heel recover from his decline that was punctuated by losing the world title to Martin Farmer Burns? Could he lose the weight that prompted the Omaha Bee to describe him as, quote, fat as a prize pig? Could his body recover from the years-long battle against respiratory infections, including tuberculosis? Who would walk away with a $2,500 winner's purse? And yes, if you listen to our Evan Strangler Lewis series, you might remember us talking about this match. And we had it fairly accurate then, but I did enjoy going back and reading the first-hand accounts, the articles about it, the lead-up to it. This was a lot of excitement because both men were deeply hated. So it was one of those rare occasions where a heel-versus-heel match almost turned into a babyface-versus- 
heel match on the power of one being a white American against a Bulgarian Ottoman. So again, nationalism and racism will turn an awful person into a hero because that's how people are, unfortunately. According to the Chicago Inter-Ocean, on June 19th, Lewis had been training at Ridgeway, Wisconsin, his home for the past six weeks, and those who have recently come from his training quarters pronounced him to be in the best shape. Yusuf never trains. He is possessed of remarkable strength, backed by a phenomenal constitution. He asserts that if he were to train, he would get too strong and become muscle-bound. The article also considered that both men loved the same finishing move, the stranglehold. And when hearing that Yusuf didn't exercise because it would make him too strong, did you also hear Andre the Giant in The Princess Bride saying, it's not my fault being the biggest and the strongest, I don't even exercise, and no, I'm not going to even try to do the accent because it would be disrespectful. But back to the finishing move, back to the stranglehold. Quote, Yusuf says that he has used the stranglehold in many of his matches in Europe and that he doesn't fear anything in that line from Lewis. If Lewis thinks that he is going to pinch my neck off with a stranglehold, he will get badly fooled, said the Turk yesterday. He had better be careful that he doesn't get his own neck pinched off. The Chicago Tribune covered the match with their June 21st article, Against the Turk. At 9 p.m., Yusuf Ismail made his way to the ring with manager William A. Brady and his interpreter Max Kruger. The Turk was wearing black tights with a heavy sweater and a turban. The crowd gave him a mediocre reception. When Lewis entered 15 minutes later, the crowd cheered like crazy, because no matter how hated you were in those days, you were still more popular than a foreigner. It was announced that all holds were legal, except throttling the neck. Tim Hogan was announced as referee and Malachi Hogan as timekeeper. The match began at 9.25 with both men starting cautiously. The Turk grabbed a stranglehold, but Lewis escaped. Soon after, they went to the mat with Yusuf on top and Lewis's face pressed into the mat. Yusuf had his arm around Lewis's neck, looking for a choke. At the three-minute mark, the ref stopped the match. Lewis got to his feet, spitting blood and his face purple. The Turk went to his corner, awaiting the announcement of him winning the first fall. Instead, referee Hogan declared it to be an illegal throttling and awarded both the fall and the match to Lewis. They announced the decision, and at first the crowd was confused, but as it sunk in, they started getting very angry about this. After 15 minutes, and the audience nearly to the point of rioting, Lewis and his backers returned to the ring. William A. Brady spoke on behalf of the seemingly cheated Turk, We are not here to rob the public. We will agree to give Lewis the winning end of the purse and wrestle again with any man in this house as a referee. George A. Considine, who backed and had a lot of money bet on the Turk, shouted, They argued for three solid hours this afternoon and, would, and wanted no one but Hogan for a referee. Brady foolishly agreed. Hogan walked over and yelled, What are you squealing about? Hogan refused to let the match restart as an exhibition after being insulted and was removed by four policemen led by Inspector Jack Hartnett. After much arguing, Charles O. Duplessis was announced as the referee for a new match, two out of three falls. Almost immediately, the match went to the mat, with Lewis escaping a half Nelson. They got to their feet and were roughing each other up on the ropes, and the Turk repeated the hold that ended the first match, 
Duplessis gave the first fall to Lewis off of a DQ. While choking the strangler, the crowd, which was no longer on his side, chanted, Remember the Jap? Alluding to the time Lewis choked Sarakichi Matsuda unconscious, and that turnabout is fair play. The second fall started at 10.35 p.m., and the strength advantage, and probably rage advantage, of the Turk was on full display. At one minute, Yusuf secured a hammerlock, turned Lewis over, who in turn rolled out to escape. The Turk held firm, pulled him back, and secured a choke so ferocious that the paper called it an awful strangle. Lewis surrendered at the 6 minute 30 second mark. William A. Brady showed the Turk's arm off to the crowd, showing the marks from where Lewis bit him trying to escape the hold. Bit of a yikes moment there. After the 15-minute rest, they came out for the final fall. Yusuf, quote, threw him around like a meal sack, his head spinning and twisting out of desperate places. Three times the Turk got the strangle and choked off Lewis's wind by smashing his nostrils and mouth flat. But Lewis slipped the punishing arm down, clinched it under his own chin, and claimed repeated fouls. Referee D.U. Plesis refused the claims. After several minutes and 10 seconds, Yusuf shut off Lewis's gas meter, and for the second time, the strangler threw up the battle and quit. After the match, Lewis said, He is too powerful for me. Then he took the $2,500 given him by Hogan and went away. So this is, in my opinion, one of those cases where, in a sense, it was a work, but only one side was in on it. And unfortunately for the Turk, that one side had the referee on their side. So it's a situation where I also had trouble trying to discern the rules, what a throttle versus a chokehold was, because the chokehold was legal. It seemed to be a not a problem in the match, but throttling was, which by all definition means when you're choking somebody but kind of shaking them at the same time, I don't know how that would apply to certain holds, but I feel like the referee was looking for any excuse to DQ the terrible Turk to ensure a victory for the Strangler. On June 29th in Buffalo at the Music Hall against Dennis Gallagher, Gallagher was the Buffalo homegrown star and was in the same conversation as Muldoon, Lewis, Matsuda, and Burns in the 1880s and early 1890s. From the June 30th Buffalo Review. Dennis Gallagher, once the pride of Buffalo as far as wrestling goes, met his Waterloo last night before a large audience in Music Hall. The article pointed out that Gallagher had been out of the game and passed his prime for a while, but probably wouldn't have had anything to offer Yusuf in the ring, even at his best. The agreement was that Yusuf had to throw him twice in an hour. Quote, at the call of time for the first bout, Yusuf played around for several minutes and then picked his man up like a child and put him on his back in just 5 minutes and 27 seconds. After a short intermission, during which Yusuf smoked a cigarette while Gallagher underwent a rubbing down by several seconds, the men came on for the second bout. And I do love that image of just Yusuf just not even winded, barely warmed up, just smoking cigarettes in the back, not giving a shit. In the second fall, Yusuf let Gallagher get any kind of hold he wished, but it was like trying to move a stone wall. He could do nothing with the Turk. Matters went along in this manner for several minutes when Yusuf got down to business and put the Buffalonian on the mat in 10 minutes. 
He could have done the trick sooner, but he apparently wanted to give the audience their money's worth, or was at least asked to carry uh, Gallagher for a little while to beat the betting spread. That's me with my insinuations again, never mind me. And at this point in the story, as we wind things down, you might be thinking, wow, is he getting ready to sail off into the sunset and into legend? And I say, of course not. He took a steamship, and an ill-fated one at that. On July 4th, 1898, his contract having expired, he was heading back over the Atlantic, rumored to use his wrestling earnings to settle down and open a coffee shop in his village. But the SS La Bourgogne sank en route to Europe, and the terrible Turk Yusuf Ismail drowned. There are stories of him being dragged under the water by the gold-packed money belt around his body, creating an almost tales-from-the-crypt-level ironic death, and that he was throwing women and children overboard trying to get to the lifeboats. And these stories are almost certainly the creation of promoter William Brady, who went on to be a Broadway producer and was a mentor to a young Tootsmont who learned the tricks of showbiz razzle-dazzle that he in turn brought to wrestling in the 1920s. The Salt Lake Tribune snidely stated that, if reports are true, he went down like a coward when there was opportunity for a display of heroism and that, quote, the terrible Turk evidently went down on both shoulders this time. His obituary from July 29, 1989 from the Evening Wisconsin read, Ismail Yusuf, giant wrestler, miser, and glutton who died in the sea. Somewhere on the bottom of the Atlantic, 60 miles or more south of Sable Island, there is lying in the tangled wreckage of La Bajorne the massive muscular body of a man. And in the leather belt around that man's waist are gold coins to the amount of $8,500, a goodly weight. The man was Ismail Yusuf, Turk wrestler, protege of the Sultan, miser, glutton. The weight about his waist was what did him to death. When the French liner went down, it was a hand-to-hand -hand fight among the passengers and crew for possession of the boats. Ismail Yusuf was a giant, a wild beast for strength, and he might have thrust scores aside when he made for a boat. But the belt was about him, and he thought more of that than he did of the boat or himself. So he went down with it, and the world has lost a unique figure from among her men of might. Incidentally, Skutarl, which smiles complacently opposite Stambul, has lost its demigod. For Yusuf was revered and feared in Skutarl, whence he came. Yusuf was on his way home to open a coffee or a bazaar or some such place of indolent business, where he might put more gold into his belt and stuff more food under his belt. For Yusuf was a gourmand of the most insatiable sort. The terrible Turk had never really been beaten until the belt gripped him this last time. Men won from him on fouls, but not by strength. It was his invariable rule until William A. Brady began to manage him to go into a bout with a belt around him. But Brady at once changed the order of things by compelling the Turk to defest himself of the cinch. For Yusuf wore it tight before entering the ring. There was $2,800 in gold in the belt at that time, which made the Turk overweight. And from the moment the belt was off until the bout was over, Yusuf was in agony. He was like a Samson short of his strength. How to praise and bury a guy in one obituary. 
holy crap. So once again, we have to kind of demonize the foreigner. We have to demonize the, the heel. We have to give him a death that is more iconic of a villain in a Disney movie than what was probably real. Because there were very few survivors from this ocean liner going down and those stories didn't pop up until a little bit later. I have a feeling that Brady was just trying to lean into the legacy of the man on whose back he made a decent amount of money to give himself more of a reputation because as they say in show business there is no such thing as bad publicity. So he came from obscurity. He lived a bigger-than-life villain role. He was treated somewhere between a monster from the hills and a cartoonish eating machine. He was a circus freak. He was a fighter. He was a spectacle. And unfortunately, we know so little of the man himself. We are left with a legacy of his legend, of his matches, of his press clippings. But that's what pro wrestling is all about. The facade hides the real man, and so long it does a good job, nobody can tell the two apart. So that's going to be our story for the day, our story for this episode, our story for this week. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you liked the, the re-examination of some of these matches from a different perspective with some new information. If you do, just please let me know. I, I love feedback. I want to make sure I'm entertaining and educating to my highest ability. If you like what we're doing here with the show, uh, please give us a five-star review. Say some kind words on the interwebs. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I like to post as many old articles and photos as I can find during my research. And hopefully you get a kick out of those. And the show will be back in two weeks when we take another look back to the pioneer era. Another revisitation of an old story. I'm going to enjoy talking about it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. But for now, it's time for me to go crack open a book, download an archive, and do some more research so I have more stories to tell you. I'll talk to you next time. Take care.